Hello, I'm H.D. Chambers, and welcome to Impact Ed. I'm the superintendent of schools for ALEAF ISD, and we are continuing uh, the Impact Ed uh, episodes regarding COVID and our local health authorities and how they have been partnering uh, not only across the community and across the state, but also with our local school systems. And today I am honored to be uh, joined by Dr. David Callender, the CEO of the Memorial Hermann Hospital System. As we begin this conversation, I, I just want the viewers and the listeners to know how supportive uh, not only Dr. Callender and the Memorial Hermann System, but all the hospital's CEOs and the leadership down in the Texas Medical Center have been to superintendents and to our educators. Never thought we would uh, <laughs> we would be as close as we are and and share so many things in common. I don't I don't know who's been on local TV more, you, David, or superintendents. You know, CEOs of hospitals or or superintendents in the last nine months. But uh, nevertheless, thank you for joining us, sir, and and good morning to you. Well, it's great to be with you and the healthcare leaders across greater Houston have been so appreciative of the collaboration with our school leaders across the region. It's really helped us think about what we can do to best control the spread of this virus and try to keep people healthy. And certainly our school leaders have just done an outstanding job of working to limit spread within the schools. And that is a great result from our perspective. <laughs> Let's talk about that a little bit. Anyone who works in a school, parents of children who are sending their children to school, obviously the adults who work in schools, have been nervous since day one But when we open schools. When I say we, the royal we, my A-Leaf included. From the health perspective, what have y'all learned about the virus, how it impacts school in general? Maybe talk a little bit about that issue because for a long time, opening schools was the most politically hot potato in the, in the country about should we open, should we not open back during the fall? So what have you guys learned about that since then that, that's relevant to a teacher and to educators who work in our schools? Well, let me reflect back to the beginnings of the pandemic and then draw the parallel with what we've seen in schools related to what we've seen in the hospitals. You know, our employees were very concerned about the risk of acquiring COVID-19 while providing care to patients. And you may remember all of the concerns about PPE. Did we have the right types? And did we have enough to see us through and protect our people? We learned a lot about precautionary measures, and we've been extraordinarily fortunate in that this virus is limited by just common things that we can do to stop it. So wearing a mask, washing of our hands, maintaining appropriate social distancing, and creating physical barriers to spread. And so as we were thinking about schools restarting in the fall, we brought that information back to our school systems. We talked about what we've learned in our hospitals where we've effectively stopped the spread. I think the school systems have done a marvelous job of taking that information and those approaches and adapting them to the school context, the school physical environment. Because of that, we're not actually seeing large rates of transmission in the schools. We're seeing very little transmission in the schools where all of those efforts are at play. What we are seeing is transmission outside of schools, in family gatherings, where people who are familiar with each other really discount the risk of asymptomatic spread. They get together in close contact without masks, and often someone pops up positive for the virus. It's kind of funny that 
we put our schools in such a high safety environment with all the things, the protocols that you just mentioned that we've now part of our culture almost. And then as soon as school's out, it's as if people say, well, you know, there's no COVID out here or there's no COVID with my family. And in many of the very things that they practice in the schools and demand that we enforce in the schools are the things they don't practice in, whether it's a family gathering or going to the grocery store or whatever, whatever the event may be. But David, one of the things that I find, I don't know, it was brought to my attention. I find it really intriguing. I never thought about it, but it's in some cases, our inability to judge the risk that we put ourselves in. We don't really truly evaluate it to the extent and then measure it in a common sense way. I mean, we, we do stupid things. People do stupid things, right? Have you seen from y'all's perspective, this seemingly getting tired of the mass, the social distancing, you know, the virus itself and people letting their quote unquote, their guard down because they're just tired of it. They're or they don't feel as though they're susceptible to it as, as maybe others. Is, is that part of the, the calculus that you guys are looking at when, when we see people really not behaving properly in public with these types of uh, advice from you guys? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we think that's really responsible for the bulk of the transmission that's occurring. It's not so much that we have large numbers of people who are willfully disregarding our advice. They don't want to contract coronavirus any more than you and I do. But we're all tired of sort of living beyond what we consider normal, of having to take these extra precautions. We miss that opportunity to freely get together with friends and colleagues and loved ones and share stories, share thoughts, have good conversation. And so we disregard the risk. And this virus's behavior is quite insidious. You know, the fact that 30 to 40 percent of transmission is occurring when people are asymptomatic Mm -hmm. makes it that much harder to truly perceive that there is a risk when we're in one of those situations. So we see our next door neighbor out every day. We walk our dogs out in the neighborhood. We're used to getting together and talking, visiting. And we said, you know what? You look well. I feel well. Why don't we just get together? Well, if one of us is asymptomatically carrying the virus and it puts the other at risk. So, again, that's to me not willful disregard. It's just like, ah, can't we just be normal again? Yeah, I agree with you. I find myself in that in that category of people uh, a lot of times. The two things that are on most people's mind. One is the surge or what y'all have been seeing for the last, I don't know, month and a half or two months. And then the announcement and then the ultimate delivery of some vaccines to the healthcare industry. Talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, a little bit about the surge and from Memorial Hermann's perspective or from just the hospital executive perspective, what that's done to the hospital system. And then the vaccine, we'll, we'll spend a little time talking about the vaccine and some of the frustrations and some of the things that uh, I would like for you to be able to share with the community about facts versus maybe what uh, they believe or they're hearing. Yeah, the principal issue with a surge is that people who need hospital care may not be able to get it as easily as they would if we weren't fighting a surge. So um, when our hospitals fill up with COVID patients, that means that we can't do as much urgent care, uh, semi-urgent care. So let's say, for example, joint replacement for somebody who's in pain and can't work. 
because they need a knee or a hip replaced. Well, our beds are occupied that would typically be filled by a patient in that situation, so we have to put them off. Well, that has an impact on their functionality, on their ability to work, on their income, and so that's not a good thing. The other thing that we've seen is that people who have fears about coming to a hospital because they're concerned about contracting COVID in the hospital are staying away. Not only are they staying away from hospitals, but they're staying away from their physician's offices, too. Now, like the schools, we all have taken great precautions. and We're just not seeing spread of the disease within the four walls of clinics and hospitals. But still, we need to constantly reassure our patients so they feel safe. Well, those who don't are people who would normally seek colonoscopy, Mm -hmm. mammography, other preventive services. And we've seen actually the numbers of cases of cancer that have been diagnosed fall dramatically in the period between the onset of the pandemic and the last time we did a major measurement, which was back in the summer. So we're seeing two types of detrimental impact. Number one, we can't get people in who need care because their beds are occupied by COVID patients. And number two, people are afraid to come for care that they really need. And that could have a negative impact on their health, particularly over the course of time. So right now, we're at a level of surge that's essentially equivalent to our maximum surge back in the summer. That's concerning, particularly as we think about ongoing impact from what people were doing around the holidays. That fatigue factor that we just talked Mm -hmm. about and the emergence of this more transmissible strain, the strain from the UK and South Africa that the scientists refer to as B117. Well, if that's more infectious, it could translate into more cases, more severe illness, more need for hospitalization, and that prolongs and perhaps increases the peak of the surge. Now, none of us know if that's truly going to happen, but we're worried about it, And so we're doing everything we can to convince the public to use these good behaviors, help us stop the spread while we work to get the vaccine distributed. I had either read or heard that there was a concern with the possibility of that UK strain being the dominant strain, if you will. I don't know if it's the right terminology, but being the dominant strain that that begins overcoming the other less dominant strain. Is that That's correct. And what we've seen um, in other places where this strain has become dominant is it's taken it a few months to get to that point. So we've seen um, identification. We've identified that B117 variant in a number of places around the country. Well, if it goes here, like it has in other countries around the world, then say by the end of March, it could be the dominant strain. And again, lead to a more significant surge or a longer surge. I think it's important, you and your colleagues have made this point uh, before, that at this time, there's no indication that the the UK variant is any uh, more lethal or stronger. You're more likely to catch it. It's more contagious. Uh, Therefore, back to your point uh, earlier, is that it would stand to reason that you'd have more people catching the virus, if you will, because it's just a more contagious strain of it. Yeah, absolutely. So there's no indication based on the studies to date that it is any more lethal, it causes more complications, or that it is resistant to the immune system's response to the vaccine. 
So the vaccines work, at least against this particular strain. Good. Let's talk about the vaccine because that's sure that's uh, (laughs) got your attention and your staff's attention. But let's just start with the general idea that this is H.D. Chambers' observation, and I'd like for you to maybe react to it or comment on it. As political as it was and has been and continues to be, it seems to me there was uh, almost an over my words, not yours, but almost an over an over hype and oversell on the number of vaccines that would be available in the immediate future. In other words, the demand was far outpacing the supply, even when we thought the supply was going to be greater than it is. Talk about the supply, the demand, how that's impacted not only your system, but others, and how that's impacting everyday citizens who are waiting on, on their chance to get the vaccine. Yeah, it's a complex situation. And, you know, unfortunately, when there's a not enough supply to meet demand, a lot of finger pointing typically occurs. <laughs> it yeah, seems yeah. that that's the case here. Yeah. I, certainly speaking on behalf of my colleagues, the health providers are administering every dose that we get. Right now, the challenge is just the supply that's coming from the manufacturers. Mm. I think the federal government is thinking about how it can enhance the distribution based on the supply that's being made available. The states, every state has a little bit different system. Our state is certainly trying to distribute it as equitably as it can, thinking about the needs, what the needs look like across the state. The problem is there's just not enough of it yet. Now, the good news from my perspective is that a lot of people want this vaccine. Mm -hmm. We'd actually have a more substantial problem in the long run If we didn't have a lot of demand for the vaccine, if we truly want to reach herd immunity and from my words now, move back towards normal lifestyles. Um, And so I'm encouraged that people want the vaccine. They're willing to take it. We've actually seen in surveys the percentage of the population that desires to take the vaccine go up as we've distributed more information about how these vaccines work. So that's a good thing. The other good thing that I see happening is that there's more collaboration now than there was initially between the states, the federal government, the providers, the city and county health authorities to take a look at how we can truly stretch the supply, make sure that we're getting the supply that we have to the highest priority citizens. Mm. And so right now it's the older folks, those with chronic disease who are at highest risk for death or complications from COVID-19. Soon it will be essential workers. And our understanding is that teachers and school personnel will be included in the definition of essential workers. So that's really good to hear considering the role of the schools. And so in any case, we think that we can with supply that seems to be available over the course of the next two or three months, get through that class of essential workers and hopefully by the mid to late spring be moving into vaccinating the general population. That's very hopeful news. I mean, I, I know that people are kind of clinging to hope in a lot of cases that we get back to whatever the normal is, whatever whatever that is. The demand for the vaccine, is it has it been greater than what you guys expected going into it? Were y'all fearful of people's concern about 
how quickly it was seemed to be developed. And you got some that are never going to take the vaccine for a variety of reasons. And and I want to be really clear for those listening and, and viewing, this is not a, this conversation or this topic is not to try to convince anyone of anything. It's just to be as informed and provide as much information as possible so people can make their own decisions. But were you all su- surprised with the increase in the number of people that wanted it compared to what you did prior to getting the vaccine, you know, actually receiving it? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think there's been a lot of good sharing of information, communication about the vaccines, the science behind them. We know, and I know you all see this too, that an individual may have, you know, a particular reason for not taking the vaccine that could be related to personal history. It could be related to some other significant piece of history associated with that individual's background. And the only way that we can get people to consider their beliefs and truly think about becoming more willing, if they're not currently willing to take the vaccine, is to talk about the science, to talk about the studies, the clinical trials, how they were designed, who was included, to look at our experience so far with vaccinating 250,000 people in Texas and Mm -hmm. 50,000 here in the greater Houston area and and talk about what we've seen in terms of negative impact. And so in any case, um, there's been a really good communication effort. And what we've seen is the willingness of the public has increased since we truly started talking about these vaccines, how they were developed, how they were tested, and what our experience has been since we started administration a little bit over a month ago. I heard heard someone speaking recently about the, for the potentially the first time in history, so many countries came together, the scientists, the health professionals from multiple countries came together under one, with one goal in mind. You, You run a very large, large hospital system a very successful one with a great reputation and, and part of the Texas Medical Center. Did you see that? I mean, did, did, would you agree with that assessment of of the cooperation and collaboration that some people have given credit as a part of the reason for the, the quick response for the vaccine? Absolutely. I, I think this is a miracle of modern science. And, you know, perhaps we're not for the global nature of the pandemic, the threat, Uh, in terms of mortality and complications, hospitalization, long-term functional impact, we wouldn't have this level of collaboration that's resulted in really rapid development of great vaccines with minimal side effects. I mean, it truly is something that's unprecedented. So the global pandemic is unprecedented in our lifetimes. The last time Humankind saw anything like this was with the 1918 Spanish flu. The development of effective vaccines, effective at this level, so rapidly is absolutely unprecedented. Again, is a tremendous achievement. I've heard uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Dr. Borwinkel with the UT Health System, remind us, particularly educators, that while the virus is consume the oxygen out of a lot of rooms, right? I mean, the one thing we can't forget is what you just described was this 
uh, amazing accomplishment in our science field, in the STEM field, you know, the science, technology, the engineering, mathematics. At some point as a country, as a whole, and in as educators as a whole, at some point there has to be, uh, we need to think about how the education system prepared men and women all over this planet to do exactly what you just said, which is something that has never been done in our lifetime. I don't want to get over over-exaggerate, and maybe this is a fair comparison, I don't know, but I mean, you take a look at what our country did to put a man on the moon back in the 60s, and the collaboration that went into that, and the the skilled math and science that men and women had then, comparing that to now, I don't know if it's, like I said, I don't know if it's a fair comparison, but I would hope that at some point we look back on this and look at it like that. This was something never done before. Yeah, I think it's cause for celebration, definitely, and you know, we um, we appreciate all of the work that our educators do to prepare children, young adults for future careers, certainly for those of us in healthcare, the exposure to the STEM fields, the great background, just the way that the subjects are taught in a way that brings the curiosity of young people into play as they think about what they want to be in the future. It's marvelous. And I think it not only has it contributed to the development of this vaccine and a broader response to the pandemic, but also just to our ability as a society to fight disease and improve health. So I'll say on behalf of my colleagues, thank you to all of you. Oh, well, anyway, I just think it's it's worth noting that it gets that part of it gets lost in the other the other important facts about the about the virus, but that sometimes gets lost and I don't want us to, to forget about that. Your expectations earlier, you talked about perhaps by the end of April, early May, uh, enough vaccines to begin vaccinating the general population. From a hospital system perspective, how do you see that happening? I mean I'm I'm watching us try to try to distribute the ones you have now and the and the demand is so great as you mentioned. Talk a little bit about strategy. People that are watching, listeners, don't put this in stone. But think about strategies. Are you are you thinking strategies of, of uh, vaccinations through a variety of different sources, or is the state of Texas helping support you on that? Just in terms of how you see that rolling out. So as we start thinking about what that might look like, yeah, you know, we we don't believe it's a one size fits all mindset in terms of getting the vaccination out to the general public. In areas like Greater Houston, we believe that we need to continue to do mass vaccination events. The city has done one recently. We just did one this past weekend as a health system at NRG Stadium and vaccinated a little over 14,000 patients in four days. So clearly those sorts of um, models work. But we also have people who have of transportation issues, who can't get at, easily get out of their neighborhood or get to a mass vaccination site. So we need a, a mobile strategy to get out into neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, we perhaps can use elements of the mass vaccination model. So make it walk up or drive up and use a modular approach in terms of the number of people and pieces of facility that we have that are in use to administer the vaccines. But clearly, we need to be thinking about the different geographies that we serve, the different neighborhoods that we serve, all of the communities, urban, rural, something in between, and have an approach that allows us to serve 
each of those special sorts of needs associated with those geographies and neighborhood characteristics. So we're all working on that now. We're developing pilots. Our approach with the mass vaccination event was really a pilot. Mm-hmm. We had 11 stations. We had a certain approach to managing drive-up traffic. This was a drive-up approach with, the, with uh, you stayed in your car, and it worked pretty well, and it's pretty easily scalable. That wouldn't work in a neighborhood, but we could use those little tents mm-hmm. and have a walk-up approach. So we're trying to think about what can we learn, how do we learn the fastest. So we're prepared when that vaccine supply enables us to go at this much more quickly. Right now, how do people sign up or attempt to make an appointment, if you will, for a vaccine? Is there a is there a registration? And I'm curious, is there a centralized registration form that goes to all distributors or is there? No, there, there's not. And that's been one of the criticisms of the existing um, system is that you have to have a relationship with the city, with the health system, something else. More recently, the health systems in particular said, no, that's not true. We've created invitations. We've, through websites and social media, made access to vaccination more available. That's a relatively new development for us. What we'll need as we go forward with a more significant supply of vaccine is a more centralized approach to registration. Mm-hmm. And so that's the reason for these pilots working with the cities and the counties. Okay, what registration and scheduling system are we going to use? The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines require two doses. Right. right. And so that makes the scheduling system a little more complex. <laughs> yeah. And so we need to be thinking about that and make sure that when we have a centralized system, it is robust enough to accommodate delivering the first dose and scheduling the second within the time frame that's appropriate for that second dose. So we still have some kinks to work through, but we feel like we're going to get that done. If I had a vaccine today, my first one, is the vaccine that I need for my second one, whether it's 21 days or 28 days, is that vaccine part of a distribution that's coming later? Or is there a way to guarantee that person who got their first shot, there's going to be a second shot at the appropriate time? In general, it's part of the allocation approach. Okay. So in our state anyway, thus far, we've been guaranteed we would have second doses when we delivered first doses. Now, in some cases, particularly with the Pfizer vaccine, we've held a few back just to make sure that we could manage any variability in delivery, Mm -hmm. which has sometimes occurred. But right now, we're getting allocations for first and second doses. So that enables us essentially to administer all of the vaccine that we've received, which is a good thing. That is a good thing. That's a good thing. Because there's different points of view out there that feels as if I get my shot the first time, are they going to have enough for, for my second one? And does that, if I don't get it, do I have to start all over? And I mean, I don't know the answers to those questions, but that's uh, that's what's on people's minds. You know, when you get into the, the subject, Dr. Callender, I will wrap this up. I, I really wanted to kind of conclude by talking about how the, the health industry. So I'm, I'm lumping everything into under this one umbrella, but the messaging that y'all have been putting out since day one, or at least since you kind of began identifying what we were dealing with nine, 10 months ago for our 
parents. Most people are parents, and a lot of people have kids, a parent, a children in schools. And maybe just talk a little bit more or reinforce some of the things that we've talked about during this episode, but also in these meetings. And I, I want to mention that Dr. Callender and, and several others from the Medical Center meets with myself and several other superintendents weekly, every Friday morning. And I cannot tell you how helpful those meetings have been in my decision making. My staff hears me say, well, during our I call it the medical center. I said, during our medical center meeting, we discussed this, this, and this, and these are the things that we're hearing and referenced a lot of the topics that that you and your colleagues have shared with us. As we wrap this up, just looking for your perspective on staff members and parents who have children in schools and kind of reaffirming what you know and how to go about continuing to be safe in our schools for both parents and their children in schools, as well as, as well as our staff. Well, first, I want to say thank you to everyone who's helped us stop the spread of the virus by wearing masks, washing your hands, maintaining social distancing, avoiding getting together indoors in large groups. That has helped tremendously. You know, please help us as we go forward by continuing to practice those behaviors. Hospitals and schools are safe places. We have protocols in place to protect our students, our workers, our visitors, our patients in the case of the hospitals. And so we really have stopped the spread in those two settings. Where we're still seeing spread is out in the community and going back to an earlier point in this discussion, it is often in a situation where there's familiarity where nobody feels sick and we think it's safe to get together and not wear a mask, not maintain an appropriate distance in an indoor space. Because 30 to 40% of transmission occurs on an asymptomatic basis where the person transmitting has no symptoms, the person that has it transmitted to them doesn't know, can't tell there's an infected person near them. Then um, that puts us at risk. So we need to continue to wear those masks, practice these behaviors for a little longer while we get the vaccine supply up and get it administered. So we believe we can get to that level of herd immunity um, by sometime in the summer or maybe early fall. So it's really just a few more months. Mm -hmm. So please help us. Thank you for all of the great work today. Help us spread the message, too, that, you know, don't let the guard down. Understand that just because somebody doesn't look sick doesn't mean they're not infected. And, you know, the challenge and the burden we all have is that it's pretty hard to keep vulnerable uh, vulnerable people from contacting people with the virus unless we follow these behaviors. Healthy people aren't that much at risk when they're sick with the virus but unhealthy people and older people are. And so to protect them, particularly the older folks who are our friends or our loved ones, members of our families, we need to continue with these behaviors that stop the spread. Thank you, Dr. Callender. Appreciate your time. I really do. The point of this entire conversation is to continue to inform people. You and in, in, in your role, your colleagues that, that are in their roles, we are just trying to be a, a conduit of information, not only to our staff, but our communities, but we're also attempting to to be a partner as we move through this. And hopefully as we get into the summer and the fall, then herd immunity is, is actually in place and 
uh, we get to some sense of normalcy, we will maintain these relationships and maintain this collaboration on, on other efforts, and maybe not a pandemic. But I think if there's a silver lining in some of this, it has brought institutions closer together so that they can work more closely together. And, and our, our health institutions and our education institutions uh, are two of the most important in our, in our society. And so uh, I'm honored to be a part of that with you. Well, thank you. We appreciate the partnership, the collaboration, and like you, we see great opportunity in continuing it as we move beyond this darn pandemic. All right. Take care of yourself. Stay safe and appreciate you. And we'll circle back uh, soon when we've got updates to share with, with everyone. So thank you again, David. Thank you. All right. This has been Impact Ed. I'm H.D. Chambers with Ailey ISD. Thank you. Stay safe and have a great day. This has been an AMP production.